away from Elizabeth for a few months. I was studying in London. We'd been dating for a few years. And uh, I got really homesick, like so homesick. I was, let's say, away for a couple of months. I, I made my own chart of days left that I had to see Elizabeth. And every evening after we'd finished our training, I'd come home, have a little weep and cry in my bed and, and tick off one of those days. And, and as the days got, got, got shorter in number, my heart kind of grew and burned to be back with Elizabeth. And I, I love being with Elizabeth, but there's also something about being home, right? Like London's a big city. Some of you guys have spent some time there. Some of you love it. It's a big city, but it's a tough city. And, and being from here, I, I wanted to be home. I wanted to have home comfort, to be close to Elizabeth, be close to my parents, be close to the things that I know and I love. And actually, all of us will resonate with that to a certain extent. When we go away from home, even if we're in the most beautiful Airbnb on holiday somewhere, there is a sense of after, after a while, like we just, we just long a little bit for home. There is a restlessness within us. Some of us, when we go on uh, beautiful places on holiday, uh, we enjoy the place that we are maybe so much that we, we come home and, and we try and recreate some of that holiday at home. So either looking through photos or we see the wallpaper and think, oh, I like that, we'll do that at home. Or we, a little cushion or just, just little things that we've enjoyed from that home that we try and bring to our home. And there's a sense that they're kind of two different things. There's a restlessness of, of wanting to be back home. And there's a sense of recreating, of wanting to take something from someone else's home to be in our home. But actually, there's a sense in which they're both, both pulling at the same desire, which is this, we all long for home. We all long for home. And that is a desire that is deep in the heart of every human. And I'm not just talking about bricks and mortar and the places that our posts get dropped into. I'm talking about a home for our souls. There is a sense of restlessness and a sense of needing to try and create something that, that feels feels like the home that we want. A restlessness in all of us because we long a home, a true home, a home for our souls, a home where we don't have to recreate something else, a home where we're, we're no longer restless, a home where we feel at peace. We're in Exodus 25, 27. We're, we're working our way through the whole of this book. This is the third section of the book of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at something called the tabernacle this afternoon. The tabernacle was, was uh, this tent, a, a place we're going to see that God's presence dwelt amongst his people. Uh, God uh, kind of goes through these movements through scripture. You see uh, first in Eden and then here in the tabernacle and then in the temple and then through Jesus. And then ultimately in the new creation, we see God's heart and his desire to be with his people. And he's always, all the way through history, creating ways and means for us to enjoy his presence and enjoy the sense of rest and peace that we have, that we all crave when we think of being home. We're going to look at this tabernacle and some of the details of it this afternoon from chapter 25, 26, 27. But really, the story starts right in the beginning. Thinking about this restlessness and this craving for home that we have. As human beings, the story starts right at the beginning in Eden. See, humanity once had a home and it was perfect. The Garden of Eden that we read in Genesis, that isn't a fictional fairy tale. It was a real place. 
And it was a place of security, a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of safety, a place of comfort. And as you read the descriptions of the Garden of Eden in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, you see uh, what's described as the tree of life. Some of you read that before. It's kind of in the center of this, this, perfect, this perfect garden. In the center, you have this tree of life. And out of the tree flows, flows eternal blessing or what should have been eternal blessing. Blessings from God, life from God. It was the source of, of nourishment and refreshment and, and all of the good that they enjoyed in the garden. You have this tree centered in the middle. But the best thing about the Garden of Eden was that God was there. He ruled and he reigned over Adam and Eve. And let me just say this. His rule over humanity was and is and will be nothing like the rule of our rulers today. God's rule isn't a rule that is founded on greed. God is a rule that isn't sexist. He's not racist. He's not a bigot. He's not a fool. Everything he did as he ruled over Adam and Eve was good. Eden was his garden. And it was a home for humanity. And humanity's home was found with God. If you know a bit about the Bible, you know how the story goes. In Genesis chapter 3, humanity reject God's rule. And God removes them from the garden. In Genesis chapter 4, you get this little detail that you might pass over. It's really important for actually the story that we find ourselves in in Exodus. As Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, it tells us in Genesis 4 that they were removed to the east of the garden. They were taken out the east of the garden. Just hold on to that because that's important as we go on into Exodus as they were taken out of the garden, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that felt the, the restlessness and the need to, to kind of recreate some sort of home. Their restlessness because of their sin, because of their sin nature, was passed on to their children. And again, you might know the story, Cain and Abel just live in the hostile world that exists outside of the presence of God. Cain murders his brother Abel. And the Bible says, after that murder, they continued east. And that pattern has continued ever since. Every single one of us is born as a son, as a daughter of Adam. And we are all born east of Eden. East of Eden is a place that is far from God. East of Eden is a place that is far from home. And that is where we are born. And we feel it. Maybe we should shut the door. You pop that on close. Thanks, mate. We feel the sense of restlessness of being outside the presence of God as we come into this world. And as we come to God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 25, they feel it as well. They long for home. And actually, haven't we seen in the last few chapters, God has promised to take them to a place of rest. So remember in Exodus chapter 23, we read of God giving the promise of, of carrying his people to the promised land, taking them to Canaan, a physical place that as we read through the Bible is a place of rest, is a place of peace, is a place where God's people were meant to flourish and enjoy the fullness of life that God had intended for. But they haven't reached there yet, which is why God gives them the instruction to build this tabernacle. 
Let me just read a couple of verses, chapter 25. We can't read all of these chapters. I'm just going to dip in and out of a few verses as we go. Chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary, this is God speaking, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Let me just pause for a second and read out verse eight again. Make me a sanctuary, that's a home, that's a place where where God's holy presence will dwell. Make me a home that I may dwell in their midst. Let's just allow the, the, the profoundness of that statement just to sit for a minute. Thinking of what we know of the Israelites. Thinking of what we know, if you know the story, is about to come in a couple of chapters when Moses gets to the bottom of the mountain. God says, I want to be with my people. I want to dwell in their midst. Moses, make me home. I want to be with my people. And so he gives them instructions to build this tabernacle, to build this tent, this place where his presence will dwell. And the reason he does The reason it's a tabernacle, the reason we see all of the details that we're going to see fundamentally is because he wants to be with his people. But all of the details are firstly for this reason, because the tabernacle pointed them, the Israelites, and points us back to our first home. Just pop that one up for us, Karis. The tabernacle points us back to our first home. And you know, if um, if you've kind of been to your family home, if it's still there, the one that you grew up in, if your mum and dad still live there, your parents still live there, or even if they don't live there, but you drive past it, that sense of nostalgia. Do you ever get that? Or, or So for me, it's a smell. Like if I've been at my mum and dad's house, I'll come home. I don't even know what it is, but I always come home smelling of oil, even if they're not cooking something. I don't know what it is, but Elizabeth always knows. She's like... You've been to your mum and dad's every night. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, there's things about our, our, our homes that we grew up in that, that are just nostalgic, that take us back to childhood memories, right? And, and what God is doing, specifically through the, the, a number of, of things within the tabernacle, is he's drawing this sense of nostalgia. He's turning their heads and their hearts and their minds back to the first home that they had. As you read through, you'll see echoes of Eden all over the tabernacle. Let me just kind of throw out a few just really quickly before we get into some of the details. There are specific things within the tabernacle that as God's people saw it, their minds would have automatically gone to Genesis and gone to the Garden of Eden. And they would have seen that God is, God is trying to create a home here. He's trying to, to help his people see that he wants to be with them. He wants to bring them into his home. So here's the first one, the materials. In chapter 25, verse 3, You see, there's a list of materials that are going to be used to to create uh, the tabernacle. And it starts with gold and it ends with onyx. I'm sure that's how you say I'm going to go with it anyway. Gold and onyx. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, as you see the materials that are in the Garden of Eden, they are the materials that are listed gold and onyx. Uh, Secondly, this lampstand. We're going to talk in a little bit more detail about the lampstand that's placed in the middle of the tabernacle, one of the key pieces of furniture. Now, just look at me. Chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. And as I read out the description of what this lampstand looked like, how it was uh, um, instructed to be be formed and fashioned, just think about what it sounds like and where your head goes. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem... 
it's cups, it's calyxes, no idea on that one, and it's flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. And it goes on talking about blossoms and flowers and and branches. What does it sound like? A tree. What was in the middle of the Garden of Eden? A tree. We're going to see how actually they were so closely linked together this lampstand in the middle of the tabernacle created like a tree that was to give light to everything before it so much like the tree of life that was in the garden thirdly seven times in the creation accounts of genesis you hear god said and seven times as you get the instructions for the tabernacle you hear the lord said or god said Fourthly, as God finishes his work of creation in Genesis on the seventh day, he commanded uh, um, something for God's people called the Sabbath. And as we get to the end of the description of the tabernacle, this home for God, this almost new Eden in chapter 31, we have instructions for the Sabbath. We'll look at more about that in a couple of weeks and more on this one here as well, Adam in the Garden of Eden was ordained as a kind of a, a priest in Eden. He's told to work and keep this home of God, the garden that God had created for his people. He's told to work and keep God's home. And the only other place that that language, work and keep, is used is when it talks of the priests in the tabernacle. They are ones who work and keep. They are like priests, but they are priests, just like Adam was a priest in God's home. And finally, but most importantly, in Eden, God's holy presence was there. And in the tabernacle, God's holy presence was there. God is recreating, kind of cultivating, pulling their minds back to their first home to help them see, I want to be with you. I want to be with my people. I want to dwell with my people. He doesn't want to be separated. He doesn't want us to continually be east of Eden. He wants to be right in our midst. And again, let's just take a moment before we move on. Just consider that for a moment. Consider who you are. Consider the life that you've lived this week. Consider the thoughts that you have thought. Consider the deeds of your hands. Consider the affections of your heart. Consider all of the ways in which you know that you've lived in a way which should displease God, which should have you shut out of the presence of God. And if you are a believer, if you are one of his sons and his daughters, he is pleased to have you in his presence this afternoon as his spirit dwells in you and his spirit is here. God wants to dwell with his people. The tabernacle is an echo back to Eden, our first home. And next, there is a pointer forward to our true home. I mentioned before, there's this growing sense of presence in Scripture. Starting in Eden and then moving through the tabernacle, the temple, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who literally lives amongst us and then finally culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. When all of God's people will be brought together and we will live under his rule and reign for all eternity. That is our true home. That is where we are heading as God's people. What's it going to be like? Well, the furniture within the tabernacle shows us 
It points us towards what our future home will be like. And so I just want to go through just uh, five bits of the, the key furniture. These are the key items that were told to God's people, uh, told uh, to, to be created for the tabernacle. The first one's the ark. If you look at chapter 25, uh, verse 10, I'll just read out a few of the details as we go. The uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 10, sorry, of chapter 25. Make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay with pure gold inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Then down to verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony, that is the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. I should have said, We've got graphics and they're horrendous. They are absolutely appalling, but it's the best I could do. So let's just go with it. The, the white arrow is pointing to the piece of furniture. That is a kind of mock-up of the tabernacle. And you'll see as we kind of go along these five different items, where they're placed, kind of what they look like if you've got good eyesight. But I appreciate that you will be proud of these in, in GCSE, RE, and I'm sure. But for us, at a higher echelon of education, I apologise, but we'll go with it. So here we have the ark. And here's what I want to tell us. The ark is, is kind of telling us that, that our true home is a place where God rules and reigns. The ark shows us that our true home is a place where God rules and reigns. And this is why the construction of the ark, we wouldn't know this, but, but God's people would know this as they were making it, as they were forming it. It was in the same form as, as a footstool that would be made for the kings of the day. So in Moses' time, the kings and rulers would sit on a throne. They would govern their land, their empire from a throne. They would judge from their throne. And part of their kind of grandeur and glory is they would prop their feet up on a footstool. And it would be pretty much exactly as this was designed. A golden box. God is showing his people here that he is one who rules. He is one who judges. And the, the ark finds itself right at the back of the tabernacle there in a place called the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God's presence dwelt. God has shown them that, that in this space, in the middle of the desert, his rule is touching earth. He is their king who reigns from heaven. And this is the place where his throne in heaven is touching earth. And the Ten Commandments are important. You see, they were told to put the commandments inside of this ark. God is ruling and reigning from heaven. And he is ruling his people through his law. East of Eden was a place of chaos. It was a place of death. It was a place of destruction. But God's home, folks, is a place where he rules and reigns with righteousness and justice. God is showing them in the construction of the ark that he is a ruler. He is one who rules well, rules with justice, but not just that. Look down at verse 17, at verse, yeah, verse 17 of chapter 15. You shall make, this is on top of the ark, you shall make a mercy seat. Some of you will have a footnote down below that says a cover. You shall make a cover of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. breadth. That word cover there literally means atonement. Now, we don't get the detail here, but as you get on into the instructions that are given, on the Day of Atonement, this one day in the year where God's people will gather together and and celebrate God's work of covering their sin, on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest will go into that room and sprinkle the ark with blood. See, God places the commandments in the ark and tells his people, this is how I want you to live. 
I'm a God of justice. I'm a God who rules well over you. Live like this. This will lead to the flourishing of life, but he knows that they will fail in every single one. And so he sprinkles the blood of a sacrifice over it to show them it's okay. A place where God rules and reigns is a place of justice and a place of mercy. Next, we have the table. Let's look over the page to verse 23. The table shows us that God's home is a place where we enjoy his presence. Verse 23 of chapter 25, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Then skip down to verse 30, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Folks, there is nothing that, that makes a house feel a home more than a table, and especially a table that is set with food. The table is a place where family gather, where friends come together. The table is a place where, where those outside of the family can come and find a place and can enjoy hospitality, can enjoy refreshment and rest and joy. And so it makes sense that in the tabernacle, which is a blueprint of our future home, it's given us clues of what our future home in the new heavens and the new earth will be like. It makes sense that there is a table laid with a meal. Not because God was hungry, but to remind God's people that he is inviting them to come and enjoy his presence. To come and be refreshed in his presence. To come and be nourished in his presence. We've seen this picture a few times before, haven't we, in the Exodus. Meals in the presence of God. We need to remember a meal in the presence of God is the goal of our salvation. And we're going to enjoy a taste of that as we share the Lord's Supper in a few moments' time. Next, we have the lamp. The lamp shows us that God's home is a place where we live in the light of God. I've kind of mentioned the lampstand already. We've mentioned how it looks like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But the lampstand also shows us to look forward to the light that we would find in our true home with God. It helps us see that in a home that we have waiting for us with God, this will be a place that is flooded with light. Look at chapter 25, verse 37. Here's um, some more of the instructions here. Uh, you shall make seven lamps for it. That's on the sides of the lampstand. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. This lampstand, this tree was set up to light what was in front of it. God is showing his people that his home is a place of light. And what do we know comes with light? Life. We need that. And we need that now. We need some of that, that now. Our, our world is a dark place, right? And we know that from our experiences this week. We know from in our own lives as we've been contending with sin and the brokenness of our desires. We know the darkness that is around us. We know the brokenness and the darkness of the world around us from our experiences this week. Well, our true home, folks, is a place where there will be no dark. Not at all. The light of the glory of God will shine for all eternity. In the home that is ahead of us, there will be no more sin, no more evil, no more darkness, no more death, just light and life for all eternity. The ark, the table, the lamp. Every time God's people saw or heard about these objects of furniture in the tabernacle, they were to see them as signposts, pointing them forward to their true home. 
See, the home that they were travelling to wasn't ultimately Canaan. That was just an appetizer. The home that they were heading to was heaven. As we just think about those things that we've described there, a place that is flooded with light, there is no darkness. A place where God is ruling and reigning with all justice and where there is a complete mark of mercy over God's people. When we think of a place where we get to just enjoy the presence of God with no fear, no condemnation, just feasting with him, enjoying all of his benefits. That sounds like the world we all want. That sounds like a home we want to stay in, right? Well, the next bit of furniture shows us why it doesn't come to us naturally. The next object was the curtain. See, all the way from Eden, humanity continued to settle east. They were unable to come into the home. They were unable to come into the presence of God because the door had been effectively locked. God shut Adam and Eve out of the garden because they rebelled against him. And we are naturally shut out of the presence of God for the same reason. Sinners cannot settle in the presence of a holy God. That's why they were shut out of the garden. And that's why when in Genesis chapter 3, you see the descriptions of how they were shut out of the garden. You see that the God places cherubim, kind of these angelic guards across the entrance of the gate. And that's an important thing just to hold on to for a second here. They cannot get into the presence of God because these cherubim guard the way to the tree of life. They guard the way to the presence of God. They guard the way from humanity enjoying all the things that we've just described, all of the peace and the rest and the flourishing and the nourishment that comes in the presence of God. These cherubim guard the way so that humanity cannot enjoy those things. And that same image is replicated in the tabernacle. Look at chapter 26, verses 31 to 33. Here's the instructions of how the curtain, you see the the purple curtain at the back, that's set right across the the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the place where the ark sits, this, this kind of footstool of God, the place where heaven is touching earth, the place where God's presence dwelled. This curtain was was strung across it. And then listen to the description of how it was made. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place From the most holy, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You see in the garden, the cherubim are stopping the way for humanity coming into the presence of God in the same way. On the curtains here, the cherubim stand guard. You can't come in. Sinners cannot settle in the presence of a holy God. See, the tabernacle was a wonderful blueprint of home. But it really highlighted our great problem, which is our sin. Our sin which prevents us from coming home. Our sin which creates this restlessness of longing for all of the things we've just described, but but never being able to take hold of them in all of their fullness. Our sin which makes us try and create our homes here and settle here when when here is never going to be enough. The curtain reminds us that we couldn't come in is why we need 
the next piece of furniture, which was the altar. The altar showed God's people that their home with God was open to them through sacrifice. So as you came into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing that you would see would be the altar. The altar was used to offer sacrifices. An animal would be placed on the sacrifice. We talked about this a few weeks ago and it would be placed on there as payment for your sin. The animal would die so that you didn't have to. The animal would take the place of you and make payment for your sin. And as you can imagine, remember there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people. As you can imagine, the altar was used a lot. Look at chapter 27, verse 3 talking about how the altar was to be made and what was to go with it. Make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. So God has given instruction to Moses to say, okay, you're going to need some stuff to clear out the ashes because this altar is going to be used a lot. It's going to be used again and again and again and again because sacrifice after sacrifice had to be made to make payment for the sin of God's people because, because it was never done. Because they continue to sin and the payment would never be enough. So so God says, okay, you're going to need brushes and shovels. Keep clearing out the ash because we're going to need another sacrifice on top. And then when that's burnt, you're going to need another one on top. And when that's burnt, you're going to need another one on top. The way back home for God's people is through a sacrifice. But the tabernacle can never deal with their sins once and for all. That's why the altar points to Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14, it's on the screen for us. The Apostle John says this, as Jesus comes into the world, the world he describes his coming like this. The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt amongst us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwell literally means pitched his tent. God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and his coming was like him pitching his tent, tabernacling in the midst of God's people. And that's interesting. All of the furniture within the tabernacle, it points towards Jesus. The ark, it points towards Jesus' perfect rule and reign over us. The table, it points towards Jesus, who through his broken body and his shed blood brings us into the presence of God. The lampstand. What does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. And it is through Jesus, the sending of his spirit, where we are able to have the trueness of life. It is through Jesus and the sending of his spirit that our paths are able to be lit through his word. The deep gut longing that we feel, this this restlessness that we feel, that restlessness is removed in the coming of Jesus as he brings home to us. The longing that we have for home, folks, is found in Jesus. So if you are far from God, if you feel that restlessness, and the obvious application and implication for you is come home. Come home. One of my favourite quotes from C.S. Lewis, who wrote 
Narnia and lots of other stuff is, if we find in ourselves desires that this world cannot satisfy, it must mean, I'm paraphrasing, it must mean that we were created for something else. If we have this sense of restlessness, this continual need to create home wherever we go, but it's never enough, it never gives us the peace and the rest and the flourishing that we so desire, that is God screaming at us, that's because you're not made for here. You are made for something greater. You are made for someone greater. This is not your home. And Jesus spreads out his arms wide and says, come home. Come home. I've opened the way. Come home. If you aren't home, then you need to come. And Jesus says, he is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes home except through him. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. And let him lead you home. If you're already a believer, what does the tabernacle mean for us today? Do we just resign it to bits in the back of our Bible with funky pictures? And I think there's something more. I think the tabernacle would show us today that this world is not our home. So we stop treating it like it is. I want to say that to you, Liberty Church, as my brothers and sisters in Christ this afternoon, this world is not your home. So stop treating it like it is. See, if we actually believe that, and we allow that truth to settle into our hearts, that there is a home ahead of us, that is where we're headed, then it would have great implications for how we use our homes now. James K. Smith, who's a Christian author, Frames it like this, he says, so often we try to make the road our home instead of realizing that it's leading us home. You see what he's saying? So often we try to make the road, this life that we're living now, we try and make the road our home instead of realizing it's leading us home. We're on a journey, so don't don't make your bricks and mortar here. Don't lay down your roots here. Don't try and find your rest and your security and your peace and your flourishing here because it's not here for for you to take hold of. In all of its fullness, it is in a home with our God in a time to come. This world is not our home, so let's stop treating it like it is. The implications of that truth for us, just as we close, I just want to run us through three potential applications for us this week as we leave. And I want us to try and just see this through three movements globally what does it look like as we think of our home here now as citizens of the world how does the implication of our home being in the new heavens the new earth with christ how does that how does that change how we live now as global citizens in this world how does it change us as as members of liberty church how does it change you as the person who lives in your house well firstly as we think with a global perspective if our home is ahead of us And the idea of people coming to our country in search of rest and security and peace and flourishing, the idea of people coming to our country and us thinking that it's okay to to pack them off on a plane in handcuffs, assaulting them as they get on board, and now we hear of them being tagged just so we know where they're going in case, you know, well, these are dangerous people. That idea is anti-gospel. And that's not a political statement. I don't care who you vote for. Because this is not our home. 
And actually, what the tabernacle shows us, folks, is the things that we have now are tools to lead other people to our true home. The homes that we have, whether they're global, whether they're bricks and mortar, whether it's this church, God has given us as ways and means to draw the people to experience the rest, the security, the peace and the flourishing that is only found in the presence of God. And our country is one of those things. We don't shut people out. We use the means of grace that God has given us, like the freedoms of our land. To show people the, the, glo- the glory of God. To show people actually how God in his common grace has equipped us as a country through institutions like the church to care for people. To love them. So that they would see the love of God. See, if we truly believe that this home wasn't our home, we would use the home that we had to lead other people towards their true home. And there was something beautiful, I've totally gone off here, sorry. There was something beautiful about the tabernacle and the way it was made, right? Um, it had an opening in it, it had a doorway that you could go through. And out of that doorway, the way the lampstand was placed, out of that doorway, the light of the lampstand, which was perpetual, it was continually lit, it was a continual light, the light would flood out of that door. And the tabernacle would be in the centre of God's people. They're all camped around. And you just imagine the picture and this incense coming out of the temple, out of the tabernacle as well, this sweet smell. And you just imagine all of the emotions, all of the senses being evoked. In the, in the dead of night, imagine you're just walking back to your tent and you see the light in the tabernacle bursting out and you smell the sweet aromas just flowing out of, of this home of God. Folks, the things that God has given us now, our homes, our country, whatever it is, these are things that he has given us to draw people towards him to draw them so that they can come to their true home so they can come into his presence so they can enjoy true rest true security true peace and true flourishing so that's on a global scale what about us as a church can i just say to you if you're just bouncing here sunday to sunday and this is just bricks and mortar to you or you're just coming here and engaging in the life of Liberty Church to get your own sense of security, your own sense of comfort in the week, just to get a pinch of rest as you come here on a Sunday. I'm not, I'm not sure you've kind of understood the implications of what we said correctly. God has given us this church, not, these build, not this building, not these bricks, this church as in the people of Liberty Church as a means of drawing other people to experience the true rest, the true security, the true peace, the true flourishing that is found in him. Liberty Church isn't about you. It is kind of, but it's not ultimately just about you. I kind of really wanted to leave the doors open, but it was really distracting. But it is a wonderful reminder of why we're here. I had the beautiful privilege of watching these guys do their thing in the park on Saturday so they set up a table with some great cakes and average shortbread we've realised and um, I know, I know, I made it by the way and it was, I thought it was amazing but it was terrible um, and I stood back and I just watched these guys engage with people what do we reckon, 100, 150 people came past and we told them about church, we gave them a cake we had some deep conversations, right Mark? It was beautiful. And I was like, that, that is it. I'm well off of you. And when we moved into this building, we were told to lock the doors once we came in. 
That is anti-gospel. That is not who the church is. That is not the type of people that we've been called to be. But to call people in so they can be sent to their true home. The place where they will flourish. The place where they will rest. The place where they will find security. And we can't do that with the doors closed, metaphorically. And what about you individually? If this world is not our home, how does... How does that have implications on how you use your home? It's not bad to have bricks and mortar or whatever your house is made of. It's not a bad thing. God has given you that as a gift to draw other people so that they can be sent onto their true home. So how are you using it? How is your table laid? Is there just enough food in the fridge for you? Or is there enough in there for someone else? What type of people is your house filled? And here's another lovely thing about the tabernacle is that it was open for everyone to come. Everyone who, who was a believer, everyone who had faith in God, they could come. The courtyard was a place where even Gentiles could come. And you read on through the scriptures, God gives rules so even the Egyptians shall come. The Egyptians. If God was their true God, they were welcome to come. So different to the Israelites, but they were welcome to come. The Gentiles, so different to the Israelites, but they were welcome to come. So what type of people do you have in your home? Do they look like you? Do they sound like you? So, same socioeconomic background as you? Or is your home truly open for anyone? As a place where God can call others to find their true rest, their true security, their true peace, and their true flourishing in him. So we don't have a tabernacle now, do we? We don't have a temple. We have the church. God's presence dwells in Lark Lane. Dwells in Egbeth. Because that's where you are. Let me pray for us, folks, and then we're going to take this meal together. As an act of response, an act of worship. Father, we thank you for your eternal desire to dwell amongst your people. Thank you for the home that is ready for us now. Thank you that that is the place where all of our restlessness and cravings that we experience now, they will all be gone. Thank you that even the rest that some of us have enjoyed today, it's just a, a foretaste, an appetizer, a drop in the ocean of the rest that we will enjoy with you for all eternity. Father, we recognize that that doesn't come to us freely. It's not by our works, but it's by the work of your son, Jesus. So we thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for coming and tabernacling amongst us, for pitching your tent amongst us broken, sinful people. Thank you that you came and lived amongst us. Thank you that you died for your people and you rose again to bring us into the presence of God. And that is where we are now as we are united to you through your spirit. We are there at the right hand of the Father. Our hearts long to be there physically and we look forward to that day but for now we ask for your help help us not to live like this world is our home 
Help us to see the, the gifts, the common grace gifts that you've given us of the world that we live in, the homes that we inhabit, even this church and this people. Help us to see those things, not as, as, as things that would just promote our own safety, our own security, our own comfort, our own rest, but as ways and means that you've given us to, to take that to the world around us who need it so desperately. Help us as a church, Lord Jesus, to be, as the tabernacle was, a light in a dark place. And thank you that that the way is open for all of those who believe. So Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, shape us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.